Welcome to the Play Tracing Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Ronda. All season long, I talk to the engineers and toolmakers who make play possible, whose stories are at the fringe of game development and game design, but whose work is at the front lines of play. This time, I speak with Caitlin Gigante, whose dedication to a niche community of Magic the Gathering players has produced fully automated organized play tools and moneyball level data aggregators to streamline the community's unique game rules. If you don't play Magic, you probably know it as that game with the ultra rare, pricey cards. But with Penny Dreadful, Caitlin and her co-contributors turn that idea on its head. Every card in the Magic Online Marketplace is checked for affordability four times a year, and only when a card is two cents or less is it legal for play. As a result, Penny Dreadful decks typically run for less than a dollar. Magic's publisher doesn't officially recognize the Magic Online third-party marketplace, meaning fan-made open-source software is required to fairly enforce the rules of play. I'm really excited to have gotten to ask Caitlin to walk me through the Penny Dreadful stack because my fascination with this community was a major inspiration for the podcast. Okay, preamble over. See you on the other side. Caitlin, thanks so much for coming on to Play Tracing. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm just going to jump right into your pinned tweet. In it, you say that you asked June Rhodes to write a bio for you. And she wrote, hi, I'm Caitlin, and I make weird game-like exhibition things. I am also really amazing at .NET programming, and my code scares people. <laughs> who... So if you don't mind, would you like to give a quick shout out to June, who she is, and what do you work on together? Yeah, so June is one of the other organizers of the Melbourne Global Game Jam. It's an annual event where we get a bunch of game devs together, give them 48 hours to make a game to a theme. And she helped me do tech stuff. We did an entire ticketing system. We're at like 200 people at this event at this point. So it goes across multiple rooms in a university that we're borrowing. So we made a piece of software called Jamcast, which basically takes snippets of people's screens and shoves them up on every projector in the university. So people in other rooms can just see snippets of what is happening over other people's shoulders. And yeah, she has seen a lot of what I've done with reflection and compiling stuff directly with ASM and awful things. And having seen this code in production, it, it definitely scares her. I can imagine. But going back to Jamcast, it's such a unique example of upgrading the co-localized game jam experience where it's not required to make the event a success. But since anyone can do global game jam at home, I love that you've given them something extra special for being part of the local event. Now to abruptly switch topics, your work that I'm most familiar with is a community of Magic the Gathering players called Penny Dreadful. But right before starting the interview, you mentioned that there was a formative work that I definitely want to hear more about called CB Loader or Character Builder yep. Loader. So the background there is a piece of software that Wizards of the Coast pulled out to support 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons. It was a downloadable version of a similar thing to what D&D Beyond is these days. It has the entire rule set and you can build a character, but 
with lots and lots of drop downs and selections and whatnot. I was running a campaign at the time. I was creating custom items because a GM does that when they get invested enough. And it was like, we want homebrew, but the character builder doesn't support it naturally. And one of my players found a really bare bones thing that could inject individual items into the character builder. That was written by a guy called Jeff Ham. And I was like, this is really cool, but not quite at the point where I needed it. Thankfully it was open source. It was on Google Code, which is a thing that I have mistook for in the awful platform. That was actually the thing that taught me subversion, which is again, obviously tech that no one uses anymore. I decided to download the source code, play around with it a bit, figured out that it's a lot easier if I can make it load multiple files so I can organize my stuff better. Cause I had six players sending a zip file and saying, or extract it into this particular place. Every time I decided to change things is a lot of hassle that they didn't want to do. And it meant that I was spoiling that I was putting updates in. And so I added an older updater that could go download new XML files. So I could just go at the end of the session. Okay. Next time you're at home, load up character builder, you now have this thing. And that project was where I learned how to inject code into the processes. It was a whole lot of learning reflection, learning DLL injection, just learning how to really hack on the low level stuff of .NET. It was a lot of fun and it's still actively used by hundreds of people. I get support requests for it on at least a weekly basis, even now in 2022, over a decade since I originally touched it. We had a huge resurgence back in 2020, the pandemic started and everyone was like, oh, let's start playing D&D again because we have free time. And a lot of people just got hit by the nostalgia for fourth ed because Honestly, I think fourth head is a lot better than the fifth edition, but that's, that's a take. apparently an uncommon opinion. Mm-hmm. You'll find a lot of people who agree with it and the people who have actually played a decent chunk of fourth head will go, yeah, fifth head definitely took steps backwards to appease 3.5 crowd. But yeah, like we had a lot of people who decided for the first time in eight years, oh, I want to go play fourth head again. It went from being a project that I got like one or two support requests a year for to like, I was getting 50 a day because there were just all these use cases from people who had not touched it or not used it before, didn't really know the quirks of it. And also I wrote this program for Windows XP. It was written in the days where you can just put files in program files. I pushed out, I think six versions in two weeks from just the incoming flood of new people who didn't really have experience with it before. and just send me a whole bunch of weird edge cases. How are people finding not only CB loader, which is available publicly on the internet, are they finding a like illicit version of the D&D insider program in order to be able to use it? Is that still around? So there is a long story there. So okay. So the character builder, the offline one was released in 2009 and was officially discontinued about two years later. And it was still available for download for people who were subscribing, but all their new development work went into a version that was written in Silverlight online only, which has its own problems. This is a piece of software that most people have on laptops and were bringing to game stores or people's houses to play D&D. I don't think you understand that online only isn't really compatible with going to play D&D, especially not 
in 2012. Then in 2018 or 2019, they decided to completely kill the subscription. A lot of people were still paying the subscription for, despite the fact that there was no new content that had been added in five years and fit that had been out for a long time. I had no idea. Yeah. There are some versions of the installer floating around and I'm currently trying to figure out whether or not I can legally upload the version I have to archive.org. I think it qualifies. I'm speaking to a lawyer to check, but I would love to have it officially out there again because there is nothing else like it and WOTSI very much doesn't support it. The people who are getting it right now are going off a clause that's as long as your DM bought it, it can be shared with a playgroup. And there is an online campaign called The Guild, which is this living campaign. They have 20 GMs and 600 players and it's all forum posts to play it. It's a fascinating experiment. Huh. I guess I'll grab a link to The Guild for the show notes for anyone who wants to legally check out CB Loader. You're a fan of the Magic Card Game as well, a card game that probably a lot of listeners will have heard of. What they may or may not know is that there's two different ways to play it online. I guess since I haven't played either of them in a very long time, do you mind explaining the differences between the two ways to play Magic the Gathering online? Yeah, sure. Basically, there are two clients. The first, which was released way back in 2001, is Magic Online. It was made by a third-party company called Leaping Lizard Software. They packed together a working client and server and presented to Wizards and went, can we have the license to actually turn this into a thing and put magic out there? The entire thing is incredibly amusing as a origin story. But yeah, Wizards ended up acquiring it and supporting it in-house after about two years. It's been the premier way to play magic and basically defined the entire genre of digital TCGs for 20 years. It is a very faithful representation of a table with cards on it. Very bare bones, very much like here are rectangles on a solid plane. Nice to look at. It's easy to read. It is not flashy. It is not video gamey. It is tabletop simulator. And while it was the only digital TCG, that was amazing. But then uh, this little game called Hearthstone comes out and people start comparing it against a literal representation of a table and going, why does the Magical Live look like a video game? And so Waltzy scrambled, they made Magic Jewels and then later Magic Arena to be a much more video gamey representation of the card game. And that comes with being free to play and a much more simplified UI that is very shiny, but it, it's, I don't know, it loses some of the charm of Magic Online. It loses some of readability and the economy is very different. Oh, one other thing I should mention. When Watsy decided to launch Magic Online, they were like, who is going to spend, cause I wanted to monetize it obviously. And the way to do it was go, let's sell digital booster packs. It's not a weird concept these days, but at the time very much was. This was early 2000s. These cards are analogs to physical cards. And to encourage people that spending your money on this program was safe because people were worried about it. They added redemption, a way of turning your digital cards into physical cards and having them mailed to you, which is a really cool concept. With that out of the way, Magic Online, the older client to play Magic the Gathering is the basis 
and especially the economy is relevant to your community that you've built with others called Penny Dreadful. I was introduced to it maybe five years ago, and I feel like some things have changed about it. So why don't you just explain what Penny Dreadful is and what makes it unique? Yeah, all these cards have real-world monetary value. They have a cost attached to them, and individual printings have different values. There are cards that are expensive, and there are cards that are cheap. A Reddit user called Binary Swordsman was like, I wonder what would happen if you tried to build a deck with nothing but cards that cost one cent in Magic Online. It was a fun little experiment, and a few people took it up. The Discord server was put together, but like we had less than 100 people. I wasn't involved at that point. I am randomly just on Magic Online looking for games of Momir, which is an entirely different format. I was looking for Momir games, and I see this freeform game with the comment, Penny Dreadful, and a URL at the end. And I'm like, that's weird. And don't follow up with it. The next day, I see it again. Okay, this is interesting. I'm curious enough to click the link. It goes to the Reddit post. I read through it and go, cool, that's interesting. I'm going to build a mono white banding deck. So I built this absolute garbage deck. I jump into the game. I have some fun with it. I join the Discord and very quickly realize Discord would be a lot nicer if we had a card bot because people are talking about card names and it would be nice to have images show up. And at this point, Scryfall didn't exist yet. There were no nice bots. And so I sit down and I make a very rudimentary bot in Python that just post card images that was the start of me being involved in a more administrative capacity because suddenly I own this bot that is driving engagement of discord and I'm adding features that people want and quickly become a moderator and then part of the core team. I will say, so the bot I think is just called MTG bot. And what's really neat about it is you get to see which cards are in the format, which cards are not in the format. And even when I wasn't playing Magic Online, I was still using MTG Bot. Whenever I wanted to get two cards in the same image file because I wanted to show my friends a combo, I would DM the bot the names of the, those two cards and I would right click the image file and then just paste that to my friends. Oh, I have done the same multi- thing multiple many uses. times. Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> And from that, you say that you started joining the core team, but we haven't really explained that there's a lot of moving parts that makes Penny Dreadful possible. Yeah. Why don't you go into that? Yeah. At the same time I was working on the bot, there was another Discord user who was like, oh, I'd like to do some competitive play. And they put together this spreadsheet on Google Forms and made the first league. And it was an absolute pain to do. Me and another person who was programming inclined in the Discord, Tom Baker, we sat down and we made a website that would facilitate the league in an automated fashion and just make it easier to use. And at the same time, I was like, since we're making a website, let's scrape goldfish and tapped out and put all the decks for format in one place. I bought the domain pdriftmagic.com. From there, we ended up with the bare bones of a web presence that was more than just a static page that the old website was. The old website at edmtgo.com still exists and it's, it has not been touched in six years and I need to get around to killing it. 
I really do. It's interesting. There's a unique sense of history in the format that has a lot to do with how Magic the Gathering players have like a sense of tradition to them. I wonder if you've kept it around so long because there's this is like the original website. I don't know. Oh, definitely. Maybe I'm just putting ideas in your head. Because <laughs> and and it's hard to say like where that sense of tradition comes from, but like the things that I and other magic players have pointed out is that card decks that certain people have made back in the 90s still have the names of those people attached to that card deck name, attached yep. to that theme of the deck. And that's oh. not something that we do anymore. It's just those 90s and early 2000s players that have their names immortalized. But it just sticks around somehow. Petty Dreadful has more of that than most, I think. Because of the nature of a format, anything that is currently in the meta kind of is priced out by default. So like decks that are common modern decks or standard decks generally don't exist. But a great test bed for just finding interesting decks is, oh, what was popular in standard in 1998? Let's go look up Sly. Let's go look up Dota Kitty. You just go onto MTG Top 8. You go, what was popular in standard 10, 12 years ago? And you probably have the core pieces of that deck. What could I put into it that is either random uncommons from latest couple sets or just other weird things that work well? A mythic that was never playable in standard, but in a slightly slower format might do stuff. And you have these kind of upgraded versions of standard decks from 20 years ago and a lot of decks that had essentially died out because there was nowhere to play them. Get a second lease of life. That's a much smarter way than I used to go around making decks in Penny Dreadful. What I would do because you had made pennydreadfulmagic.com, I would just click for the current season what are all the most winningest decks and what can I add as my own special spice to those decks that might put my own mark on it? Absolutely. What you did was encouraged. The format is by its nature obscure. It's a fan-made format. It's not supported. You need to go out of your way to play it. I want to make it as easy for people to find it and get into it and start playing. Going, oh, here's a way to find good decks. Here is a quick way to download them, get them into game. And as I frequently say, net decking is heavily encouraged in playing Dreadful because it's a small community. And when you go around playing other people's decks, you're giving them compliments. Borrowing other people's decks is a good thing, not a bad thing. Is it controversial to, to have that opinion? Because it seems controversial it in certain like it parts is. of the community. Yes. It is very much part of Pen Dreadful's core, but if I were to do that in modern, I feel like I would generally get negative reactions from players and I don't really understand it. I guess everyone comes to it from different motivations. I do want to ask, do you have any idea what the average session duration is on the website? That's a good question. I could pull up analytics. That's okay. I, I would guess it's on the much, much higher side than Scryfall. There's a website, MTG Top 8. You mentioned it already. It collects hundreds of thousands of tournament top eight finishes, including full deck lists. But the experience can be summarized as drill down to a deck list, then click browser back button a couple times over and over. On your website, just the experience of clicking through, you can click on a card name 
find out all the most recent decks or all of the historical decks, even the winningest decks for that card. Click on the deck, see all the other cards that it's playing. Click on all the people who played those card decks and you will see all of their league matches. You will see all of their tournament matches. You can click on the tournament, see what other decks were playing. That's so much more of an integrated, clickable experience. How did you put that all together? That's a good question. The website is more stuff that Tom has been doing. He has a history in web dev and has a much better grasp of my school than I do, which lets him put together really amazing queries. And like, we have all these stats on what cards are most commonly played with other cards. That is something that I don't know how we have. When I look at the code, it's just, oh, here's a my school query that is 50 lines long and incredibly scary. And I trust that it works and don't tweak it much. Okay. And uh, the website's built in, I, I know it was Python. What was the name of the framework? Flask. Flask. So shout out to Tom for being a databasing genius. And it's so much faster now. It used to be actually quite slow. Um, yeah, that's the thing we've been optimizing a lot. It's something I've been... Like even this week, I've been working on trying to optimize the speed of things. I guess the reason why I bring it up, was that just being able to invest in better servers? It sounds like it was optimization work. A bit of both, actually. We have the Patreon, which has allowed us to upgrade from a $20 VPS I have from Linode. That meant that I had more funding to upgrade that the server, give it a lot more resources. And that's definitely helped. On top of that, we've being more aggressive with caching and optimizing database queries, the combination of both to make the site a lot smoother than it used to be. I want to move to something that I feel like we've only just touched on. You mentioned that in as part of creating the website, you were figuring out how to scrape from another website called MTG Goldfish. Before you started working on that, though, there may have been, I think there was an old java applet i don't know what to call it it was running some kind of numbers on the ah, magic yep. online economy yeah so so two different yeah, things there so the scraper i mentioned earlier was a deck scraper oh i see is entirely separate from the price scraper but the way we calculate price and legality is fascinating i would love to delve into that when peter Dreadful was first made someone put together this really heavy Java application that would go through the MTG Goldfish website, pull every page for each set and look at the MTG Goldfish price for what each card is worth at the time. It would just run through, it would find every card worth one cent and it would spit out a list. And that's what we did for our first legality. For the second season, we realized that it's a bit volatile choosing a single point in time. Cards fluctuate between one or two cents every couple hours as people buy and sell cards, the numbers tweak slightly and that's the sign of a healthy economy. But it means that a single snapshot of time was really not a good indication of what should be in the format. So we tweaked it to run every hour for seven days and generate a list based on anything that was once sent for at least half of that time. And that was a lot better, still written in Java, still very ugly, still doing HTML scraping against the MTG Goldfish website. It worked, but it was not pleasant and it was not good. Eventually we get access to official feeds from Cardfolder and MTG Traders that are just a large CSV file of every card in the game. I decide I'm going to rewrite the scraper in Python, integrate it with the rest of the tool set, 
because that way we can use it in the bot. We can just do slash price and pull up the price of any card at that time. People use it in conversation and I can rewrite the legality checker to use the same feeds. We end up with a much better system that is no longer a heavy Java application and instead just a small Python script. Thanks for sharing the history there. Definitely a heavy handed approach with the Java application, but that was one of, if not my first GitHub contributions was to the Java legality list checker. Yeah, I did I it a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. And, and they were bad and they were bad for like reasons that really just made a lot of extra work for you. And I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Honestly, everything about that was just bad and a lot of work because Java is not a language I'm overly familiar with, and it's very much over-engineered for what we needed. I think that any contribution to it, regardless of their individual skill, is just going to be a lot because of the nature of it. So yeah, honestly, your contributions were really great and appreciated. Thank you. I think at least one of them saved me a whole lot of work. There were like a lot of missing sets, I think, but... Yeah. At the same time that I made that contribution, I think I like somehow broke. Oh gosh, I don't remember what I broke, but anyway. I'm, guess, <laughs> I'm guessing it was encoding because encoding broke more often than I can count. There are six magic cards that are the bane of my existence. You say what, do you know what they are off the top of your head? I know some of them. So Dandad is this whale from early magic that has an accented A. Anything to do with Limdul, Limdul the Necromancer, Limdul's Lim Vault, all of those have an accented U. Seance has an accented E. And it's just like, these cards cause so many problems. We had an issue, like, when we rotated a couple of weeks ago, because we accidentally shipped the file in ASCII instead of UTF-8. And so you end up with this garbage where it's, a pair of just nonsense characters. It's a headache. And even to this day, MTGO doesn't know how to handle those cards. So if you download a deck list that has seance in it, you need to clean up the text file or remove the card and then manually add it because the text file importer can't read it. Yeah. I remember being so frustrated by that. There's a couple other parts of the Penny Dreadful stack, as it were that mm -hmm. we really need to talk about. So there's something called PDBot that is a bot that runs inside of Magic Online. There's a lot of confusion about how it actually works. So if you don't mind, we're going to set it straight right here, right now. What is PDBot <laughs> and how does it work? Okay. PDBot was, again, I was bored. I had free time and I was like, I wonder if I can make the format better. The league was popular at the time, but it was still a hassle to use. You had to manually sign up. You had to manually report games. The biggest thing was people would make games. They would put Penny Dreadful League in the comments, but you couldn't really know whether or not that was enough. Like you could play a game and then get to the end of it and go, oh, my opponent wasn't in the league. They just randomly played a Penny Dreadful game against me. Or they had either played against each other before and didn't realize it. Because you can't play the same person twice in the same run. One of them had just played their fifth game and the league had ended and they hadn't signed up a new league. And so you had a lot of people playing non-games and not realizing it until you get to the end of it 
and go to the report page and try to submit it. I was like, there must be a solution to this. I started just playing around with things. I basically opened up Visual Studio and I have six different projects lying around of different ways to write this bot. Some of them much better than others. Like I looked at the UI automation tools. Can I automatically click on things and use the screen reader APIs to read the game log? Can I use packet sniffing? Can I read the official log files out of the, cause like it looks all stuff to game log files and for debugging reasons, if the game crashes, you can upload them. So those logs must have one. Can I read those? Can I inject myself into the AXE and put arbitrary code in that does what I want? Can I write my own client and just hook my own code into Magic Online and go from scratch? Very different approaches. A few of them worked, a few of them didn't. There are a lot of bots on Magic Online already because you have these stores that do trading because no one does individual trades with other people. It's a lot more efficient to trade with stores. And all the stores use this software that automates clicking and uses accessibility stuff to literally takes, it takes screenshots of the windows. It uses optical recognition to go, oh, these are the cards I'm looking at. It clicks and drags and it does the thing where it automates trading as though it was a human with other people. And it's a fascinating system. And you have stores that are running like a dozen of these on VMs. It scares me. It's really not optimal. Stores end up with 12 or 15 bots. Each run is running its own account with its own plugin on its own computer because you can only really have one window visible at a time. And that isn't efficient. The screen reader APIs are not efficient. Polling. I looked into it. I was like, okay, what if we just launch each game? And because I'm using the screen reader APIs, I can pull the game log text box, even if it's not on screen, if it's not the topmost window, because I can just cycle through and I can pull the content of this text box. And yeah, that worked. It was incredibly inefficient and slow, but it works. I looked at doing the same thing where I manually automated clicking into games and then pulled the game logs to get the data. And that was interesting. It was a lot more efficient, but it was still a bit janky. And the game logs store stuff in the same, it literally just stores the packets. And so you still need to decrypt the opcodes and know what the server is sending when you're reading the packets. And that's easy. You grab the DLL that passes the stream and it gives you everything you want. But it's still a headache and it involves several layers of redirection. And you still need to manually click and type into your text boxes to send messages. So what I ended up doing was hooking into the existing client and just adding a bit of code that goes, run these callbacks when games happen in events let the client handle all the connections. So I don't have to write my own client. All the state is handled by the official code. I just need to run the specifics of my code as an additional hook because .NET events can have as many listeners as they want. It literally goes, okay, when a message is sent to the game log, run my code on it. Then if I need to send a message, directly send the packets using the API works really well. I've heard people say, oh, it's screen reading. Oh, it's using accessibility tools. But those people have been debunked. All of that is true. It's like, I have proof concepts. I have a version of a book that does exactly that. It's just not the one that I'm running in production. It makes sense. It makes sense. So you talked about legality checking. 
we talked about the Discord bot that helps players discuss cards that are legal or not legal. We talked about the bot that runs on Magic Online that facilitates league play. We talked about PennyDreadfulMagic.com. And we also talked about Scryfall. But I do have a question. Again, Scryfall is the fastest way, probably in every Magic player's experience, to just check whether a card is legal or just check some information about Magic cards. And it has the Penny Dreadful legality list available as one of the filters that you can filter on. How do you and Scryfall coordinate that effort? A data warehouse that they gave you the key to? No, going back to the very start, when we would release our legality list, we would just upload a text file saying, here's a list of every card. Back when the format started, you had to control F through it because we didn't have any search engines. Later we had, I think Magidex was the first magic search engine that supported it. I don't even know if they're still around or not. MTG.WTF supported it. Squirrel, when they came into the game, they're like, oh, there is this machine readable text file. It takes 30 seconds to run a script once per day that just pulls that list and updates a column. So yeah, they are using the same API that even our own website uses. They go to this canonical source of here's a list of every card. It's a lot easier to pull that list than it is to push to anyone who needs it. I get the sense that while each piece was fairly separate in the beginning of development, the stack is now a web of interconnected microservices. When one of them has an issue, like if the website's down for some reason, then I've noticed that there are knock-on effects on mm -hmm. one of the others. And maybe even legality checking has a disruption. So while I was a player, I remember legality checking disruptions starting a riot because there's drama about whether this beloved card or this hated card is going to rotate into the format or rotate out. So I guess what are the main benefits that you've noticed or that you we're pushing towards to make everything intertwined. So it's a push and pull between me and Tom. Tom has from the start gone, oh, let's make this one big thing, have a single stack that does everything. And I, I looked at it and I was like, this is unmaintainable. From the start, we've had those kind of disruptions and it's been awful. And the idea of going and tying more stuff together and making it so that if one thing goes down, more stuff goes down really isn't a good idea. So rather than siloing everything together, I have a few different things that while they share code, they all run separately and talk to each other over APIs and webhooks and that kind of thing. So for the most part, something going down doesn't directly take down the rest of it, but there are definitely notable effects. The big one is if the website goes down, PD bot needs to know whether people are playing in the league. It needs to know what your deck lists are and all of that relies on API calls. So if the deck site goes down, then it has no data and it just has to result to, I don't know what's going on. I can't do anything. And same goes with the bot. Certain functions that it has can't work. If they had direct access to the databases, that wouldn't be a problem, but it also makes the code a lot messier and can bleed to deadlocks in one just taking down the other completely because one of the big issues we have is database locks. So the idea of having more things directly accessing the database, having harder crashes compared to just, oh, I got a 500 error on this API. Oh yeah, it makes sense. Within the Penny Dreadful organization on GitHub, there's another 
repository you have called Moto Bugs. Moto being like a disfavored acronym or I guess retired acronym, Magic Online it, with Digital Objects. Yeah, it's a yeah. obsolete acronym that came from way back in the start with Sleeping Lizard. They wanted to emphasize that the cards are physical things. Weird acronym, but it, it's persisted because it's what it was called for the first 10 years. And it is a lot easier to say than MTGO because it sounds like a word. It goes back to magic players being grounded in tradition. The same reason why one of the popular shortcuts, the F6 button, that would skip the rest of your turn when you don't want to take any more actions during a turn. No longer defaults to that button, but still among the popular expressions is to F6 your turn because I feel like magic players are just like really rooted in tradition. F6 in particular has gone so much further than Magic Online. There is a very iconic game, a physical top eight game of magic that was being broadcast. And one of the players is just comboing off of X. It's very slow. It's very tedious. It's not fun to watch. And so this combo is happening and his opponent just sits there for a while and then grabs a piece of paper, writes the text F6 on it, puts it in the middle of his battlefield, and then just sits back and lets the opponent combo off. Because he was sick of going, yeah, it resolves. It resolves. Yeah. Definitely a lot that you could say there about interfaces between analog and digital, and especially the fact that it is being filmed from the top-down perspective, almost as if there's like an awareness of the interface of people watching as though it was a digital media. I don't know. Maybe that's a little <laughs> bit too media studies for this podcast, <laughs> but something to think about. Anyway, so Moto Bugs is a, another repository, but it's a little bit of a different kind of effort. Why don't you explain what Motobugs is? Okay, so Watsi used to have a weekly blog post called the Magic Online Bug Blog, and it would give a list of all known bugs. But of course, even at the top of that article, they would say, we list bugs that we think are relevant, not everything that is known is published here because of Penny Dreadful, because of the card pool and the way we do things. We play with a lot of, of obscure cards and saying, oh, there's a bug that happens when you have two copies of an unplayable rare from Mirrodin and play at the same time. That would, even though we absolutely encourage people to report bugs and we always do, the fact that most of the time those bugs didn't end up in next week's block. And so as a community, we needed a way of going, this is a known bug because we run tournaments and we need to adjudicate matches and we need awareness of what bugs affect the format. And so, yeah, we put together a repository on GitHub that just, it's an issue tracker that lets people keep track of what bugs are currently affecting Magic Online, post screenshots and videos. It has a job that converts the GitHub issues into a JSON file that we then consume for the Discord bot and for PDBot. So when you play those cards in game, PDBot will tell you, Oh, by the way, there is this bug. You should try to avoid it. When you sign up for a league, it tells you your deck has these bugs. Are you sure you want to sign up with this deck? It very much makes the game a lot more accessible with these obscure bugs. Eventually, Wadzi stopped updating the Magic Online bug blog because Arena was a hot new thing and they, like many things, dropped the resources of 
keeping this list updated and publicly accessible. I'm sure they still have an internal bug tracker, but we don't have access to it. And so we needed to make one of our, of our own. Do we have time to talk about Gatherling? Yeah. That's another one with like a long history. You have a history lesson packed into each one of <laughs> these code bases that you support. And it's so interesting because sometimes you get into a discussion about what the reason is that you've made a piece of technology. And it's just so different to hear fan communities talk about why they built something. But you didn't start building Gatherling. No, as I understood it. Gathering was built by, and I've tried to research this, and the version of history only goes so far. It's a absolute mess. Why don't we start with what is Gathering? <laughs> okay. So way back when, some point before 2007, a group of pauper players decided, oh, let's run tournaments. And so they put together this website that could, people could upload deck lists and it would do Swiss pairings and would run a tournament. I don't remember their name. But I know that it was a pauper group and it was a very long time ago. And the rest is lost to history. The first commit on GitHub was at least two years later from a different person from a different pauper group that had taken this code base and upgraded it. Fast forwarding a bit, there was a publicly ver accessible version that had been forked by a group called the pauper crew. They had decided to add support for multiple formats because they wanted to do pauper standard and modern pauper. And because they'd done that suddenly, oh, we can add support for modern. We can add support for legacy. We can add support for tribal wars. And we look, looked at it and we went, hey, can we put Penny Dreadful on this site? And it was robust enough that, yeah, we could upload the Penny Dreadful legal list. It was awful. You had to add the list in four separate parts because the web server would time out if you tried to upload a list of 20,000 cars in one sitting, but yeah, like it supported it, it worked really well. And then a couple of years into running events on it, the website goes offline. Oh, this is really bad. Panic stations. And at that point I go on GitHub, I search really hard. I find Jamuru's port, which is the uh, original fork that's on GitHub. It is several years out of date comparing the features of that version to the version that we were using. There were many features that were missing, but it's okay. I can sit down, I can hack on this. I can try to bring it up to what we need. I start working on that and then the website comes back and it's okay, cool. This is a relief, but it's also scary. This is a piece of software that we really rely on. You know, we run five tournaments a week on it. And the idea that it went down for five days because the guy who is hosting it, who has stopped active development because he doesn't have the time and he doesn't have the motivation to stop playing Moto. He just missed a billing cycle and didn't bother fixing it for a few days because it's a thing that he is maintaining out of obligation. I end up trying my hardest to get in touch with him. I can't get in touch with him. I do some history. I find the person who maintained it before him and get in touch with that person. And they're like, oh, I might still have access to the login details. And there was back and forth for a while. At the same time, I'm still poking at the source code from Jamuru's version, which I noticed is definitely missing features. It also has features that aren't in this version. So clearly she was developing it in parallel with Pauper Crew. And it's okay. This is a mess, but I like some of these features. Eventually I get access to the website. There is 
no source control. It's, they are doing development straight on the thing. There is .olg.php. It's a nightmare. So I download the entire um, source code from there. I get it into Git. I spend literally two months doing merge conflicts because I want to import some stuff from Jumero's version and not just start a completely fresh repo. And eventually it's okay. I can start pushing features. At this point, I still don't have direct access to the server. I just got a backup file and I go, okay, I've released a new version. Can you please upload it to the server? This lasts for another year. And then once again, we hit the billing time and it bounces and the server goes down for five days. Okay. This time I can actually fire up my backup because I have the source code that we were running on that server. And I just fire up a replacement that has none of the history, but it works. Over the course of the next three months, I convince him to transfer the ownership to me so that I can pay the server costs. I can pay the DNS stuff. And eventually it is 100% a penny dreadful thing. Were you prepared for all of the interfacing that you had to do in order to be the lead maintainer of Penny Dreadful, even ignoring the fact that you're also a community manager in a lot of respects, were you, did you realize that was going to be a thing? It was definitely not what I expected when I put together a Discord bot over the course of one after, no. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then there was a lead up to that, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And then, sorry. So what, what's the underlining framework for Gatherling? I didn't look at that one. It is entirely PHP and it is just raw PHP, no framework. It's, you oh. know, bare bones includes, think the PHP that was written 20 years ago. You have HTML, PHP blocks, lots of echo statements, technically not valid HTML, although I'm working on getting that better. Like there are so many places where it's like, oh yeah, that's not valid HTML. I remember spending two days trying to get a page to look good while also actually conforming to the HTML standard. Cause the moment I went, oh, this table has four headings and six columns. And if I add the two extra headings so that it is even, then all the CSS breaks, which is not something you want to be seeing. So I spent two days trying to diagnose that and getting the CSS to work properly with a legal table. Also, yeah, like it uses tables in a lot of places rather than divs because that was the style back in the day. Yeah. It is a very old piece of code that has been grafted onto over at least 15 years. So what you're telling me is that if you wanted to really make an impact on fan formats for Magic the Gathering, wait, does Gatherling technically support arena as well or not yet or not planned it does it is packed on and i'm not happy with it but it supports it um, okay what i was going to say is if you really want to support fan communities fan formats on magic online or magic arena then this sounds like a great way to really make an impact if for example someone was like a php wizard or even if you are really interested in learning Am I right in saying this would be a really great way to make an impact? Oh, absolutely. Also, if you know front end stuff, if you know React or Vue and are willing to make a single page app that uses an API rather than rendering server side and all of the stuff that is really out of fashion and dodgy at this point, right. that would also be appreciated. We're putting the search out right now. Hopefully 
a play tracing listener is really invested in that kind of thing or just wants to learn more so they can check that out, there's going to be links to all of the different repositories. Speaking of links to repositories, there's one last one I wanted to highlight because I was curious about the origin of it. So how do you pronounce it? It was our... Iwazaru. And I didn't know this, but that's the name of the speak no evil monkey, right? Yes. That's the right one, right? Not to hear, speak. Which is like a perfect name, except I wonder how many people knew that when they first saw this bot. Um, (laughs) It's a deep cut. What does Iwazaru do? It was inspired by a Slack community I was in a long time ago, back when Discord wasn't a thing yet. Slack had a feature called message triggers where you could go, when this word is spoken, just send a direct message. And so we'd set up a few different triggers for stuff like, hey guys, and a few different slurs. Just going, oh, don't use those words, isn't helpful. Like, it really isn't. Telling people, you shouldn't use that word, doesn't do anything because it's okay, but that can't help, that can't change me. I will accept that, yeah, it's a bad word. I shouldn't say stupid, but it's part of my vocabulary. So we made the messages go, instead of saying that word, here are some alternatives. Here is something that you should incorporate into your vocabulary that isn't as bad for people, that doesn't cause offense or hurt to other members of the community. And so when we moved to Discord, I wanted to replicate the same functionality. And so, yeah, I made a bot that leaves this reaction on your message with speak no evil and emoji. And if you click it, it will give you recommended alternatives for the words you're using. The best example, the reason I made the one in the first place was you guys, because it's such a pervasive phrase and yet it's not comfortable. Like I know myself and a lot of people go, oh, that is very much a gendered term. If you go, do you guys want to do something? I have to do this internal thing of, am I included there? Or are you just referencing the guys? And so going. Hey, try saying everybody or y'all or any number of other words that are just inclusive by default. Even if you don't click the message and you just see the reaction, it'll start getting ingrained and internalized. The issue isn't people going, I want to keep using this word. The issue is it's part of my vocabulary. And so having someone just tap you on the shoulder every time you say it and go, Hey, maybe not. That's the first step to fixing your vocabulary and using better words. I wrote in my notes that putting a little reaction emoji that they choose to click on in order to see a little bit of education on a alternative word to use. I wrote that's a gentle interface. I was wondering if that was inspired by something else, because I think that's like the secret sauce that makes it effective. I don't think so. I think that was just something that I was trying to adapt to this to Discord and figuring out what feels natural within the UI of Discord. Reacting to things was something that me and my friends were doing anyway, and it was very much a conversational way to do it. It's hard to know what actually helps reduce toxicity in game communities on Discord or elsewhere, but especially Discord. And I used to see it all like all kinds of places. I used to see Uwazaru everywhere. And I don't know, I'm in too many discords. I I feel like if you're in games or if you are interested in a lot of different game communities, then you probably feel the same way. But I don't see it a lot anymore. Is it retiring with Discord's recent 
changes to how verified bots work? No, it's, it's verified. Oh, okay. So I, you know, I got the permission to keep running it as is. Yeah. Like it does a thing that is not possible under slash commands and therefore it got the exemption is allowed to keep using message intents. So yeah, like it's very much still going strong. I have looked at the exact analytics of servers over time. I do know that it does fluctuate, but still very much a thing that is supported and will be into the future. Awesome. That's great to hear. I, I was ready to write the eulogy for it because I don't know how they how So Discord is doing a thing where they really don't want these bots to read all of the messages from all the hundreds or thousands of Discord servers that they're in. And it yeah. makes sense, but it's unclear when you're going to be able to get that exemption. And it's good to hear that Uzaru got one. Their big thing is they don't want people storing and indefinitely logging messages without consent. And that was a thing that was happening. So they decided let's just reduce the amount of people who have access to that. And yeah, if your uh, bot does things that can be done with slash commands, they will ask you to move to it. But if it does something that isn't possible under slash commands, if it requires messages for functionality or because of the unique nature of it, then yeah, they will 100% give it to you. I had a bit of a back and forth a few times with them because they were a bit confused by the fact that I had to go, you know, here's how I use it. Here's how I, it logs stuff that, and I was like, oh yeah, it has no storage. It doesn't actually store the message content at all ever. And, you know, I, as soon as I get the message, I react to it on the spot and then discard the content. And I think that was a bit confusing to them because they, a couple of times were like, you must specify, you know, what your deletion policy is. I don't have a deletion policy. I don't have anything to delete. And yeah, I went back and forth on emails like four times before they actually went, oh, okay. Yeah. Approved. Hey, good to know. Good to know. So for anyone looking for a gentle way to remind people to change potentially harmful language behaviors, uh, good one to pick up. And it's still going to be going on strong for the near, for the near future or for the long term. I think that's just about time for the podcast. That's about all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I know we, we had to like make the schedules work out. I know that in Australia it's 1am right now. So thank yeah. you so much <laughs> before we go. We do something at the end of each episode called a spotlight. Each of us will pick out one thing that we want to shine a spotlight on, something that adds value to our work or adds value to our life. So, Caitlin, why don't you go first? So, I want to give a shout out to a piece of software called Magic Set Editor, which was designed to make custom cards for Magical Gathering sets, but is so much more powerful than that. I use it to playtest card games that I'm making. You can do GUI editing of cards with really in-depth templates that are on the level of Photoshop and whatnot, but also it has CSV imports and exports. You can essentially mail merge onto a Photoshop template. And that is really powerful when building playtests. It makes developing card games and board games so much easier. Mail merge onto a Photoshop template. That's a perfect way of putting it. So my spotlight for today is the repository is called Boat Attack. 
It's by their username is Laserwalker. I think it's Amelia Laserwalker. The game that is in this repository is actually a Unity sample project. But in addition to the Unity sample project, Laserwalker added GitHub Actions, some game-specific CI, and Fastlane, if you've heard of that. What it does is it goes from build, your Unity build, all the way into automating all of the steps that it takes to get onto whatever store that you're interfacing with. And I think this includes the iOS Apple App Store. That's just not something that I ever see being open source in games. How do you do the release engineering aspect of putting games out there? So check that out. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I've always wanted to pick your brain about how Penny Dreadful works. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm really honored to be on here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Where could people reach you if they had any questions, especially if they had questions about, hey, I want to make contributions. I want to fix Gatherling. I want to take over Gatherling. <laughs> Maybe not that, but. Yeah, the best ways to reach me are either at Slazary on Twitter, S-I-L-A-S-A-R-Y, or come join the Petty Dreadful Discord and have a chat to me in the code chat. All right, I'll make sure to send them your way. Thank you so much for joining. It was fun.